turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And while you are turning there, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father God, Lord, we come before you um, just anticipating the Word of God, anticipating the presence of your Spirit upon it. And we thank you, Lord God, that we get to read the Spirit-inspired, God-breathed Scripture that is life-giving, hope-sustaining, Christian begatting. Lord, your word makes people alive who were once dead, who were once lost. It rescues. And your, your word will stand in a, in a world where everything seems like it's in disarray. Your word will stand forever. In a time, Lord God, where our culture is so devoid of biblical knowledge and morality, your word stands as a beacon of truth. And I thank you, Lord God, for this letter to the Philippians. And I pray, Father, that you would prepare our hearts. And I pray, God, that you would prepare me, that you would help me to step out of the way that your spirit would fill me, that you would help me to be self-forgetful, Christ-honoring, loving towards your people, filled with compassion in the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Lord God, for this time that we get to worship in this place to hear your word and be helped to become a people of prayer. Oh Lord, do a work in our hearts and prepare us for your truths that you have for us in Philippians. And we ask this in the holy, majestic name of Jesus. Amen. So we're in the first chapter of Philippians and we have been walking into a gospel-centered, gospel-saturated joy-producing, unity-promoting letter that's like a love letter that Paul is writing to his dearly beloved church in Philippi. And Paul, right off the bat, is going to teach them something about prayer. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when the subject of prayer comes up in church, we all kind of feel like this low-grade sort of guilt, and we're all kind of looking at ourselves like, okay, this is a message on prayer. I know there's two things that are going to convict me whenever the preacher talks about prayer or evangelism, right? And we all feel that. We all feel that sense of like, I'm not praying as I should. And we all sense the truth that the church, even in America as a whole, is quite anemic when it comes to prayer. When you go to like Seoul, Korea, for instance, the churches in Seoul, Korea, every one of them has a prayer meeting weekly that's attended by at least half the church. I was listening to a report recently that almost 100% of the churches have prayer meetings. 
And then 50% of those have all-night prayer meetings. And it's no wonder that revival has broken out in Korea, or Seoul, Korea. I mean, it's just powerful to think about one of the fastest-growing churches in the world is in Korea. And so we are bound to feel a sense of, of kind of inadequacy as we step into prayer and we're thinking about prayer. Oftentimes, I have found, and even in my own soul, I've realized that one of the reasons that we struggle with prayer is because we need to be taught in the school of prayer. Is because the Bible actually tells us that prayer is something that we actually need instruction on. It's not like this thing that we're just going to learn through osmosis. It's something that Jesus' disciples actually said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray. I mean, we want to go to the Master and learn how to pray in the school of prayer with Christ. And what we have before us in Philippians chapter 1 is a beautiful picture of the Apostle taking us in the school of prayer. Because we're seeing in this passage, we're seeing what it looks like for the Apostle to pray for his people in Philippi. And he's commending it as an example and a model for them to follow. And one of the things that has helped me so greatly in my own prayer life is to see that the Bible is filled with teaching and instruction on prayer. And sometimes we feel like, well, it's, it's, not, really, it's not really like prayer if we've got to be taught it, right? We kind of feel like we should kind of naturally. But prayer is depending on God in faith and actually talking to the God of the universe because He made it possible by sending His Son to die on a cross and to bridge the gap that sin has caused in our lives between us and God. And so, Jesus is the mediator between God and man that brings us to the Lord. And we are able to pray if we come through Jesus in faith and to come to the throne of grace with boldness. And that's the way Paul prays. If you look at our passage, and we'll start with verse 3, and we're just going to kind of drink deeply from this passage. And I want you to notice the, the, uh, Paul is going to tell us, number one, that he's praying and the attitude with which he prays. And then he's going to tell us why he prays. And we learned all this last week. And then he moves into the actual content of his prayer. So let's look at that. Let's look for it. Verse 3. I thank my God in, my, in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at 
the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer, here's his prayer, right? That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So if you've been wondering, how do I pray as a mom? How do I pray as a dad? How do I pray as a husband? How do I pray as a wife? How do I pray as a leader in the church? How do I pray as just a Christian? Paul is teaching us here. He's commending his heart, his attitude, his love for this church, and also the model of this prayer to teach and instruct us. So this matters for us. If we want to be a praying people, if we want to awaken to the glory of prayer. And notice that the end of all of this in verse 11 is to the glory and praise of God. You want to know how to glorify God? Learn how the apostle prays for the maturity and godliness and holiness and love of the church to the glory of God. When we pray for one another that we would mature in Christ, God gets glory. God is made much of. God is put at the center. And we pray that God would do something to transform us, and then He gets glory. Because when He answers the prayer that He just told you to pray, He's glorified when He shows up and your life begins to change. So prayer is being caught up in the miracle of glorifying God and depending on Him and trusting Him and loving people and growing in holiness. It's being caught up in that and you begin to glorify God. And you begin to experience God joyfully and gladly. That's why the first part of this passage that we talked about last week, Paul is just full of thanksgiving, remembering the work of God and his people. Filled with joy. And you'll see in verse 7 and 8, which we touched on last week, but you'll see the love that Paul is demonstrating for his people. Verse 7 and 8 says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace. So Paul holds the Philippians in his heart when he prays. Is that your heart when you pray for your fellow brothers and sisters? I hold you in my heart, and I come before the throne of grace on your behalf because I love you. That's the heart of the apostle. And notice he keeps saying, you're partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, he's telling them that you are participants in the grace that God has given me in the suffering that I've gone through and in the triumphs of presenting the gospel at Rome to defend the faith. Because Paul was in prison and he was going before tribunals declaring his testimony. Can you imagine that? And the Philippians are partnering with him. And Paul's reporting back and saying, listen, you guys are with me in all this. You're in my heart. And I yearn for you with a deep affection, verse 8. And God is my... It's like he's calling God to the witness stand to say, you know my heart, God. And you know my heart that I yearn with the very affection of Christ for the Philippian church. And that very thing he begins to pray would be worked out among his people. So I just want to talk about four things today about Paul's prayer for his people. And really, it's a model of what we should pray for. If you've ever wondered, like, how should I pray? Well, we have scripture after scripture where the apostle commends how he prays as a model. So we're going to do four things, four aspects that come from this flow from this prayer. That's mainly verses 9 to 11. Number one, Paul prays that their love would abound. Number two, that they would grow in maturity. And number three, that they would bear fruit. And all of it leads to point number four, that they would glorify God through this prayer. So we're getting ready here. We're getting ready to be caught up in the Apostle Paul's prayer for his people. And I want this to kind of infect our hearts that it would just be so in our souls. It would be like contagious prayer that just breaks out among us. And we begin to pray that God would move in such a way that we would begin to love one another well and be praying for our love for one another to abound. So point number one gets us right into the heart of the apostle's heart for his people and what he commends in prayer before the Lord. Verse nine, point number one is pray for abounding love. That's what we ought to do. Verse nine, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he, the apostle Paul is praying for the very thing that Jesus said would be the distinguishing mark of the disciple. Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And that's the very heart of Paul in prayer before the Lord. God, make them to abound in love for one another. And I was thinking about this, like our love for one another reflects the gospel in the way that we tangibly care, meet needs, come along the suffering, pray for one another, encourage one another, have Bible verses bubbling up in our souls to bring words of encouragement to one another. All of that is aspects of how we care for one another in our love for each other. And, and, and I, I was thinking about this, um, in, in the early church, 
um, tradition has this beautiful, beautiful story where the Apostle Paul, he's old now, he's like Grandpa, uh, the Apostle John. He's Grandpa John. He has to be carried places because he's that old and fragile. And he's at the church of Ephesus. And they carry him out every once in a while to bring a word. And so everybody's gathered around just like you all right now. And, and, and they bring out John. And, and everybody's like, John, do you have a word for us? Uh, we, we just bring a word. We want to hear what you have to say. And John's like, you know, just very quiet. And he just says one thing. He looks at them. Little children love one another. It is real quiet. Then somebody says, you always say that, John. Like, do you have another word for us? And he says, when you've done that, you've done it all. Because the apostle John knew that the love of God breaking into his people's hearts for one another is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. It's Christianity on display that it's done in such a way that the world beholds it and sees and comes in such a way towards that love. It, it's drawn by a supernatural love that's willing to risk, willing to step into hard situations, willing to come alongside when nobody else will, willing to deal with hard and difficult people, willing to Come to your neighbor when nobody else will. That's the kind of love that's being commended. And John knew it. That's why John said, God is love. And he who abides in God abides in love. When you abide in love, it means you've been drinking deeply from the knowledge and wellspring of God in the scriptures. You've come in touch with something real and glorious about who God is. And that's right here in our passage. Look at this. Verse 9, it says, It's my prayer for you that your love may abound more and more. And then notice what it says. With knowledge and all discernment. So it's interesting that he says that. It's a love that's not isolated, that's not sentimentality. It's not a distorted love, it's a love with knowledge. It's a love that comes with the knowledge of God. And it is, is it any wonder that the greatest commandment Jesus said is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself? I mean, if you were to sum up the law, Jesus said, in one thing, it would be love for God and love for neighbor. So knowledge of God, knowing God, a, a real understanding of who God is that's informed by Scripture, that's informed by the revelation of God to us in the pages of Scripture is what shapes our love. It's what sets boundaries. It's what keeps our love from perversion. Because you all know, in our culture, under the banner of love, all sorts of stuff is proclaimed. That's not love. And you even have the slogan or the mantra, love is love, right? To justify just about anything. 
Anything you can think of can come under the guise of love. But Paul says, no, this love, this love's got to be informed. This love's got to have the knowledge of God. God's the one who sets the parameters. God's the one who shows us what love looks like. And he did it by sending his son to a cross. God demonstrated his own love towards you. That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He went to a cross for you. That sacrificial love that Jesus displayed when he went to the cross. And we did not deserve it. If we were to get our just desserts, we would be in hell. We would experience the judgment of God. But for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Not to create perversion, but to deal with our perversion. To rescue us from our perversion. He doesn't come to people who are cute and cuddly and good, but rebels. People who've rejected him. Who've rebelled against him. Whose hearts are far from him. They may acknowledge him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And Jesus came to rescue those kind of people in divine love. And that love is what brews in the hearts of Christians. It's a love that radiates into the lives of fellow believers. It's a love that commends God to one another. You want to encourage your brother and sister? Put God before them in how you speak, in how you sing, in how you pray. You want healing to break into people's lives deep, spiritual renewal. We need God. This is a love that abounds more and more. The, the Philippians knew what love was and they supported Paul in prison when they didn't have to and they didn't have a lot of money, but they kept supporting him and they kept on with him. And Paul is praying that they would have more love. So lest we think like the Philippians realized, hey, we haven't arrived. Paul prayed for them, and this was a strength. They loved, but he prayed that love would abound more and more, and that this love would be filled with knowledge and discernment. And this idea of discernment is this right understanding of how to apply this love. Because sometimes we have to make decisions in the world that are an application of this love. And we need to have wisdom in that. And the Christian prays that they would have biblically informed wisdom or discernment, verse 9, so that they may be able to live in the world in loving ways and meet the needs. How many of us have needed to use wisdom in the midst of a pandemic to know how we ought to love our fellow brothers and sisters? How many of us need to use wisdom in how we order our schedule or our lives or what we care about so that we might make decisions in the real world for the eternal good of people? Sacrificially like Christ did. That's the kind of thing that's happening. And I want you to know that Genuine love never operates in a moral fog. 
It has to be informed by biblical truth. Or you get perversion. I was thinking about this in marriage, right? So you've got the idea of a husband who, it would be strange if the husband said to his wife, listen, I love you. I really do. I love you, but I don't really want to get to know you. I don't really want to know more about you. How many, how many wives would that fly with, right? And, and, and likewise, if you don't care to know anything about the one you claim to love, that's not love. We need to be informed. We need the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God to fall on this love. And that only comes through prayer. And that's what the apostle did. That was his heart. That was how the great commandment to love God and your neighbor gets fleshed out. But what's the result of this abounding love? Like, he's praying for it, but what's the end? What, what's, the, what's the net that he's trying to get? The net result. And we see it in verse 10. He's praying for spiritual maturity. He's praying for growth in godliness. He's praying for their holiness. Look at real quick at verse 10. And, and notice that it says, so that. So he's praying that love would abound so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. I mean, if I were to summarize that in a nutshell, he's praying that they would be godly and that they would grow in spiritual maturity and that they would be able to live in the world and put Jesus on display so that when Jesus comes back, they're pure and blameless in his sight. Not because anything they manufactured. This is all God. This is all a prayer asking God to do the work. And it's all because they've been forgiven and they've been brought into the family of God. But he's actually praying for their holiness. When's the last time we prayed that God would grant us holiness? That God would grow us in maturity? That's a really good prayer request, right? That's a really good thing that you want to pray for your family, that you want to pray for our church, that you want to pray for our leaders. Oh God, may you grow us in godliness. God, would you help us to grow in maturity? Help us to be blameless. Help us to be pure. Help us to be holy. And blameless doesn't mean perfection. It means that you're not causing others to stumble and you're not living in a way that is gross and, and, and somebody could point to you and just be like, that is not right. That's not Christian. That's not glorifying Christ. And if there's that kind of gross immorality in our, our lives, we have to repent. So when we're watching programs, when we're on you know streaming Netflix, when we're on YouTube, what are we watching? Right? This is the kind of maturity that comes. And when you see the love of beginning to abound in your heart, that's informed with the knowledge of God, that's wise in decision making, then verse 10 says, so that you may approve what is excellent. And this idea, this approval, 
And the farmers in here will know when you go to inspect cattle, you look, right? You look to see, to separate the healthy from the unhealthy. There's an inspection process. This same word, approve, has that idea. Or if you were testing metal to see the quality, is it good? Is it pure? Is it right? And so this approval that's happening is when we're living the Christian life, are we testing things? Are we approving of that which is excellent, that which is good? This affects how we live our daily life. If we were to ask ourselves, not just is this, how far do I get before I cross the line of sin, right? But we ask ourselves, what is the best choice here? Oftentimes that'll reshape your day because you may end up foregoing something that may be a good thing in and of itself because it's a better option. Like family devotions with the family. Or picking up your Bible and reading it. Cutting your TV watching in half or your gaming in half so that you might be able to study more. Or you might be able to make that phone call to an unbelieving friend. Or you might be able to, to, to get involved in some activity that's going to edify your soul and bring glory to God. Now, you can bring glory to God in everything you do, but sometimes there's a better option. And this maturity and godliness works itself out. It works itself out in our ability to discern and test and choose what is excellent. And this is the kind of decision, righteous decision-making that the apostle is commending in prayer. And it's convicting on some levels because I think, you know, of the apostle in Ephesians 5, he says, you know, redeem the time for the days are evil. Redeem the time. Redeem how you live. Look at your schedule. Look at what you care about. Look at your priorities. And pray that God would begin to shape this kind of love that transforms your thinking and ability. To live well. Because often the decisions we make, we don't do a lot of thinking. We need a heart transformation so that we begin to make those decisions naturally. Oh, this is clearly best. Look at verse 10 again. And notice that it, it commends us to not only approve what is excellent, but then there's this next result that says, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So Paul is after a holy life that commends and reflects the gospel on judgment day. And we can very easily turn this into, okay, now every day, I know God is watching me and I'm going to try to performance driven this thing and I'm just going to try to make myself godly. I'm going to try to make my day more righteous. But Paul begins with prayer. He begins on his knees. That's an acknowledgement. You can't do this kind of work in your own soul. You need God to work it in you. You need God to bring about the result of spiritual maturity and holiness in your life. Becoming more like Christ, more like King Jesus. 
in reflecting that love, reflecting that holiness, reflecting God, which is what we were meant to do. In the garden, we are God's image bearers. When we were in Eden, Adam and Eve, they were just reflecting the image of God in how they lived and how they stewarded the garden, and sin messed that all up. And one day, Jesus is going to come back. It's the day of Christ. He's going to settle accounts. And those of us who do not know Jesus, who are still in our sins, they will give an account to God for not living for Him, for not giving Him the glory, for not honoring Him. And it goes back to the garden where we were broken, where we needed a rescue. And deep down, we all know it. And Judgment Day is a day when Christians, as they pray for spiritual growth and maturity and holiness, begin to display that and they reflect like shining sun. Like the idea is a pottery analogy here. So be pure. The word pure has this idea of pottery and what they would do, the merchants in ancient times would take pottery and they would cover it with wax to cover up all the defects, all the cracks, all the nooks and crannies, and then they would paint it over it. And the only way to tell that this was not legit, that this was all defective, was to hold it up to the light of the sun. And then all of the cracks would begin to surface and you could see. And I thought, what a picture of what Judgment Day will be. You will be held up and you will either be in Christ or all of the cracks in your life, all of the hiding that you've done, all of the sin that you've camouflaged and covered and tried to make pretty because new life has not broken into your heart. Forgiveness has not come from above. You've not trusted in Christ. And so you stand before the Holy One of God. Condemned. Oh, not so for the Christian. Not so. We live in such a way that our lives display Jesus. Not perfectly. So get this. This purity means you're the real deal. It means you're the real deal. There was once a boxer named Evander Holyfield, and they called him the real deal because when you got in the ring with him, you knew that this guy was the genuine article. I mean, he fought Mike Tyson, you know, the whole ear thing, but he beat him because he was the real deal because he knew how to box. He knew how to live as a boxer, and he was pure to the core. And that's how we're to live the Christian life. We're to be the real deal. And we have to pray that God would work that in our souls. And it is a Christ-centered, blood-bought reality that happened and was purchased on the cross. And when you believe, God began a work in you. And Paul is praying for the Philippians. And we are to pray for one another that this kind of godliness is worked out in our souls and in our lives. And that we live lives that are the genuine article. Point number three, Paul prays for spiritual fruit. 
What do I mean by that? Look at verse 11. He prays that we're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is a filling of fruit. Do you remember where else you've heard that language? The language of fruit? Jesus actually taught that he was the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit. So this kind of righteous living, this kind of righteous fruit, this kind of godliness on display, it happens when you are united to Christ in faith. When you abide in Him. When you trust in Him. When you look to Him. When you live on your own strength, you will not bear fruit. But Jesus said, if we abide in Him, will bear fruit. That's what Paul's praying for. It's spiritual fruit that lives out the Christian life in a way that brings glory to God because He has to work the miracle. He has to bring the fruit. I was telling folks on Wednesday that sometimes we just got to pray for big things. Sometimes we got to actually believe that God can actually do miracles and that God can actually show up in powerful ways. And, and I told them, I said, I'm praying that God would save 20 people this year. And I don't know if he'll do it, but I'm going to pray for it because I know God is able to do that kind of thing. If God could use Peter's preaching in one sermon to bring 3,000 souls to Christ in the book of Acts, that's the kind of spiritual fruit I want to pray for that breaks out here. Would you pray like that? Would you pray that God would bring about spiritual fruit in your life? This is no like weak, anemic Christianity that we're living. We're asking the God of the universe to work in us and produce the fruit that He's telling us to pray for. And God loves to answer that kind of prayer. He loves to be about the fruit of righteousness that comes in our lives. And He says this uh, language in other places. Paul talks to uh, the Galatians in this way, and he says about this fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's at the top of the list. And Paul is praying for that very fruit to come out in the Philippians, and we need to pray that fruit comes out in us. We need to pray for the fruit of righteousness. We need to pray for the fruit of joy. We need to pray for the fruit of patience. We need to pray for the fruit of kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Are you having trouble with self-control? With controlling your spirit, your soul, your decisions? Pray that God would work that fruit into your heart to the glory of God. This is things that is what a prayer list. That's Galatians 5:22 and 23. Make that your prayer list. 
Look back at verse 11 in Philippians. I want you to see that this fruit is not a man-made, man-manufactured fruit. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through who? Through Christ. Through Jesus Christ. This is a righteous fruit bearing reality that comes only to those who have put their trust in Jesus. These supernatural things that begin to flow out of believers' lives come through Christ. You've got to be born again. You've got to experience the forgiveness of God and the peace of God and be right with God in order to bear fruit for Him. So if we don't have that, we may demonstrate love and and some kind of peace, but it won't be the spiritual fruit of love and peace. It won't be the supernatural reality. It won't be the the risk-taking, soul-stirring, joy-producing, life-giving kind of love that we saw in the book of Philippians when this church just begins to live for God and they suffer just like Paul suffers and he's getting them ready for it. He's like, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to have false teachers in your midst lying to you about the truths of God. You're going to be persecuted. Some of you are going to get thrown into jail. And I'm in chains here, and I want you to know my love burns brightly for you, and I'm praying for you. And that kind of supernatural help comes to believers. Last point. All of this is aimed at a certain thing. All of our life, everything we do has one ultimate good. And we either are doing that or we're not doing it. And it's glorifying the Lord. What does the catechism teach? This is a Baptist catechism. Almost every Christian catechism says, What is the chief end of man? What is the chief purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And we find that right here in this passage. To the praise and glory of God or to the glory and praise of God. All of this prayer is for the very purpose of bringing about God's glory. That's what the apostles after. God, I want you to be glorified. I want you to be made much of. And as Christians, if that's the aim of your life, you'll be more happy. You'll be joyful. It'll be a joy that circumstances don't cut down. Because it's a joy of God. It's a joy in knowing that I'm putting God on display. And I was thinking about my son, Josiah, likes space and likes uh, astronauts and stuff like that. And one of the things is you can't look at space through a microscope, can you? Because a microscope makes small things look big. But when you're looking at space, the vastness of it, you need a telescope. Why? Because telescopes make big things appear more like what they are. And that's the idea of magnifying and glorifying God. It means that we display God and see Him for who He really is in His glory, in His bigness, in His vastness. We don't have a shallow, truncated view of God. We have a God who's sovereign, who created the cosmos, who 
makes your heart pump blood in the very seat you sit who brought you from death to life in Christ Jesus if you're a believer. And this God is glorified when we actually pray that we grow to be more like Jesus. And He calls us to do it and He's glorified when we do. And then we're like looking through that telescope and we see the bigness and the majesty and the excellency of God revealed because we're becoming like Jesus and there's tangible evidence in our lives and we're like mirrors of grace and love and truth showing the world that God is real and He is worthy to be made much of. It's all to the praise and glory of God. And I want to have telescopic prayers. I want to have prayers that are Bible-saturated, that are modeled by Paul. And I, I want to go into the school of Paul and make God look glorious in the way that I pray. And I pray that you would want that. And my heart for you is that you would be summoned into that kind of prayer life. And that it wouldn't be this sort of thing that's like, I don't know. You know, I don't know about this prayer thing. I don't know about the prayer night. I don't know about corporate prayer. I don't know about praying much throughout my day. I remember the first time, and I'll close with this, that I went to a prayer meeting. And I was probably a Christian for six months. And I went in, and I didn't know what to expect. You know, it was a prayer meeting, probably a room about this big, um, filled with about 40, 50 people. And... Um, and so I go in and I'm afraid. I'm like, I'm going to have to pray. <laughs> this is, I mean, I pray by myself, but this is like corporate stuff. I don't know. I, I don't want to sound bad. I don't know what that's going to look like. And then all of a sudden I started hearing people pray. And I was like, I didn't think of them when they were praying. I thought of God. They prayed in such a way that they, I knew they believed God was real, number one, that God answers prayer, that God works in the world through prayer. And I watched week after week God answer prayers in miraculous ways. People got saved that we prayed for by name. And I was just overwhelmed. And I, I, I loved it. And I couldn't get enough of it. And I wanted to be in that kind of soul Korea, let's have an all-night prayer meeting, you know, something like that. And I know that's kind of radical sounding, but that's what you see in the early church. You see a love for the Word of God and a love for prayer. And Paul is teaching right out the gate in the book of Philippians to create a people who love prayer and depend on God and do it so that he might be glorified when he answers. And what a glorious thing that is to begin to praise God for the miraculous work he's doing. Now, we have already been seeing that happen at Smithfield, but may it abound more and more. May our love abound more and more. So you want a prayer, uh, a, a prayer list? Come to this passage. Drink it in. And pray it out unto the Lord, to the praise and glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for prayer. I thank you that you give us the privilege of prayer. That apart from you, we have no help. We have no hope in this world. 
but in you, Lord God, we are caught up in the very purpose of God. We are caught up in the great work and plan of God as the gospel unfolds, as history is headed in the direction that you are molding and shaping it. And one day Jesus is going to come back and he is going to display his bride in purity and blamelessness. And Lord, I pray that on that day we would be standing filled with the fruit of righteousness, of a life lived out for God, filled with love for our fellow brothers and sisters, filled with a rock-solid faith that's trusted Jesus for our forgiveness, who's made our lives, Lord, not right by working it up, but Lord, by looking to the work of another, Jesus, who died on a cross to rescue us from our sins. And I pray, Lord, as we're here, maybe there's somebody here who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe there's somebody who's like that cracked pottery. They've been covering over their sin with wax. They've been covering over the moral sin. They've been covering over the lustful looks. They've been covering over the programming they watch. They've been covering over the bitter rivalries. They've been covering over, Lord, the things that are ugly and full of blemish. And I pray, Lord, that they would come to Jesus. He's the only one who can deal with that. And while there's still time, while he has not come back to judge, oh, Lord, I pray that they would turn to you that they would believe Jesus died on a cross, that they would believe that he died for their sins to make them new, that he, they would believe that his blood can cleanse them of all the blemishes of their sin, that they can start fresh today. And perhaps you're in here, and as we're praying, that's you. You're not right with Jesus. You're not right with God. And the Spirit of God has been summoning you, calling you, convicting you in your sin. Maybe you've struggled with pornography. Maybe you've struggled with lying and deception. Maybe you've been living a double life. It's time to end it. It's time to turn to Christ, to repent of it, and put your trust in Jesus. And if that's you, I just would ask you to pray in the quiet of your heart. And pray, dear God, I believe I'm a sinner. I have sinned before you I've rebelled please forgive me of my sins I believe Jesus died on a cross I believe he rose from the dead please forgive me come into my life make me new make me pure and blameless for that day in Jesus name amen